to the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, we bring you Stephen Howes' plenary address on developments in Pacific labour mobility from the 2015 Pacific Update, held at the University of the South Pacific in Suva, Fiji. Uh, well, Bula, and uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, before I begin my presentation, uh, let me, uh, on behalf of the Australian National University, add my welcome uh, to those of my colleagues uh, to this Pacific Update. <clears throat> the uh, ANU has long been involved with Pacific Updates, and uh, they have been hold, held in the Pacific before, but not for some time. So it's very good to be back, and it does make a lot of sense to have it here in, um, in Fiji uh, at USP. I know you had the Fiji update yesterday, and uh, in the middle of June we had the PNG update uh, with the University of Papua New Guinea in Port Moresby. Uh, so this cycle of events uh, is a very important part of our research uh, activities and collaboration. Uh, well, I'm going to talk today about uh, labour mobility uh, in the Pacific, and um, I've given it the title, A Decade of Reforms. And uh, I guess this uh, paper, this presentation, gives me a chance to pull together various pieces of research uh, I've been involved in uh, and that are, that are underway uh, at the moment. And thinking about, uh, you know, in preparing this um, talk, it did strike me that the last decade has been uh, a, a, a real sea change, uh, has seen a sea change in terms of uh, attitudes towards and initiatives for labour mobility. And so I want to start uh, just with uh, these two quotes by two Australian uh, foreign ministers uh, that bookmark you know, this last decade, so 2005 to 2015. Alexander Downer was the foreign minister in 2005, and Julie Bishop, obviously now, our foreign minister. In 2005, uh, Minister Downer was then defending Australia's decision not to introduce a seasonal worker programme. And he wrote that the answer to the Pacific's large and growing unemployment problems does not lie in a few hundred unskilled young people coming to Australia to pick fruits, sorry, to pick fruit for a few months of the year. The answer lies rather in domestically generated growth. Now fast forward to 2015. In fact, this was something Julie Bishop said just last week. She said, our focus on trade and investment in private sector developments and labour mobility contributes to a more resilient Pacific. So the attitude had changed from being uh, either or Right? And no, we're not going to do labour mobility, we're going to do domestic growth uh, to both and. You know, we're going to focus both on private sector development at home and on labour mobility abroad, both the sensible strategies for uh, the Pacific. So obviously there's more to uh, the Pacific uh, than Australia, and my talk doesn't focus exclusively on Australia, but there has been this, this big change in thinking in Australia that is important, and um, it's, it's one of the themes... Of my, of my talk. So obviously I don't want to give the impression that labour mobility started in 2005. Right? That would be far from the truth. And in fact, the major labour mobility arrangements uh, that are still in place were all put in place before 2005. Right? So we're not painting on a blank canvas. So I just, the, although these aren't the focus of my talk, I want to begin with this context. Right? These were the pre-2005 labour mobility arrangements. Uh, there was unrestricted labor mobility for the Federated States of Micronesia, Republic of Marshall Islands, and Palau in relation to the U.S. Uh, unrestricted labor mobility for Cook Islands, Niue, and Tokelau in relation to New Zealand. And then the Pacific Access Category and the Samoa Quota, both of which provide limited access for Samoa, Kiribati, Tuvalu, Tonga, and Fiji in relation to New Zealand. 
And then a somewhat different scheme, the Tuvalu and uh, Kiribati Marine Training Centres that uh, train up uh, citizens of those two countries to work uh, in the uh, maritime industry on ships uh, around the world. Uh, so all of these are still uh, in place uh, you know, now. I just want to make a few comments about them. First of all, they continue to be very important and popular. And just to give an example, uh, the Federated States of Micronesia, its population stabilised just above 100,000. It's now actually declining. And so as soon as population will fall below 100,000, of course, falling birth rates, but also extensive outward migration. And there are now more, about 50,000 migrants from the FSM in, in the United States. Of course, we all know there are more Cook Islanders outside of Cook Islands than in Cook Islands. But even the limited windows that New Zealand provides under its uh, different quota schemes continue, are very popular and important. So just this year... I was reading, for the 1,100 Samoan quota, it's a lottery, right? You've got to apply. So 9,000 Samoans applied for those 1,100 places. 2,500 Tongans applied for the 250 places. Uh, almost 2,000 Ikiribas and 300 uh, Tuvaluans for their 75 places. And now Fiji's been admitted back into this program. Almost 9,000 Fijians want those 250 places. So there's intense competition. There's still this very strong desire uh, to migrate. And uh, of course, you've got to win the lottery, and then you've got to get a job. But in the last couple of years, most of the quota places have been filled. So these uh, pre-2005 schemes, in no way do I want to underestimate their importance. Uh, they are sometimes controversial. And you might have read recently about the backlash uh, in Guam and Hawaii, where the FSM migrants in particular, are, well, or more generally, those um, free compact uh, migrants are located. There's some backlash against the burden they're seen to um, impose in terms of uh, health costs and welfare costs. Uh, the one scheme that isn't doing very well is the Pacific Mariner scheme, and I think basically due to increased competition from Asian workers, uh, we see this dramatic decline in the number from Tuvalu and Kiribati who are actually able to go and, and get, pick up those international employment opportunities. Uh, but the final point I want to make is that none of these schemes were, were new, right? If you look at them, they all go back a long way. Uh, the one exception is the Pacific Access category, but even that replaced uh, work schemes that it were work scheme and visa-free arrangements that were in place for those uh, four countries, uh, Samoa, for, not Samoa, for Kiribati, Tuvalu, Tonga, and Fiji. So although it says 2002, that's really a continuation of a much older scheme. So. These, were, these are uh, historical relics, very important historical relics, right? But, but over the 90s and the early part of the 2000s, there was no momentum to do anything more on labor mobility. And I guess my point is that uh, that changed. So something happened in the last decade, and you have seen a number of new initiatives uh, come into place uh, to try to actually promote uh, labor mobility uh, from the Pacific. And these are the six that uh, I'm aware of, if others are aware of more, um, you know, please let me know. Uh, but these are the six that I'm going to talk about, and I divide them into three categories. Uh, first, the two seasonal uh, work schemes, you know, to pick uh, fruit and vegetables. Those are low-skilled schemes, but they're for, you know, just for a period of months, right? so very short term. Then we have uh, the two uh, low-skilled, uh, temporary, but not seasonal work schemes. So under these two schemes, uh, you can come for a period of years. Uh, in the Australia one that's just been announced, it's two years. In the Korean scheme, it's almost five years. Uh, and then finally, there's uh, what I call aid for migration. You know, we talk about aid for trade. Right? That's meant to be aid that promotes the country's ability to trade. Aid for migration is aid that promotes countries to migrate. And the idea here is rather than setting up a preferential migration category, set up a preferential aid agreement, aid arrangement, 
and help countries to exploit existing uh, non-preferential migration uh, categories. Those are typically skilled categories. And so these are skilled training programs. And the two I, have here, I cover here are both Australian schemes, the Australia Pacific Technical College and the Kiribati Australia Nursing Initiative. All right, so let me uh, go over these six uh, in, that, uh, in that order. Starting with the New Zealand Seasonal Worker Program, what they call the Recognised Seasonal Employer Program. This was first foreshadowed in 2005, announced in 2006, implemented in 2007. And you can see numbers went up uh, pretty much straight away to the cap, uh, which is, uh, I think it was seven or 8,000. These numbers are slightly smaller because there is some Asian participation in this scheme. It's fairly small, but that's why the numbers don't actually reach the cap. The cap has just been increased uh, last year to, to 9,000. Uh, so it's, a, it's generally regarded as a, as a success. Um, it's got a, you know, a fairly significant cap, and the numbers are, are at that cap. Uh, in terms of composition, Vanuatu has actually been the big winner, the biggest winner from the uh, New Zealand scheme, uh, followed by Tonga and then Samoa, and then you can see a mix of Asian and other uh, Pacific Island countries. Uh, turning to the seasonal worker program uh, that Australia introduced, as I said, initially Australia was, uh, well, just wouldn't agree to introduce this scheme, but uh, when Labor came to power, they uh, changed policy and they introduced it, I think, in 2008. Now, they introduced it, first of all, as a pilot, uh, and even after the pilot stage, when they agreed to continue it, uh, at a very, with a very small cap. And so uh, the, the cap, uh, even this year, is... Uh, well, the year just finished, it's uh, just around 3,000, right, compared to the 8,000 or now 9,000 of New Zealand. Uh, that's the cap. They're, they're the figures in blue. But uh, actuals are actually below the cap. So a low cap, but even lower uh, actuals. This is an employer demand-based scheme. If there isn't the demand from the employers, uh, you won't meet the cap. Um, I, my understanding, I haven't seen the numbers for 2014-15, but uh, perhaps around 2,500, perhaps a bit more, again, uh, below, uh, below the cap. And so if we put the two side by side, uh, you can see the difference between the uh, Australian uh, scheme, the blue in this case, and the New Zealand uh, scheme orange, uh, the two very similar schemes, and um, it's, I'll come in a minute to why they've had such different outcomes. Uh, before I do that, just in terms of the composition, who's benefited from the Australian scheme, uh, quite different to New Zealand. You can see overwhelmingly Tonga has been the prime beneficiary of the Australian Seasonal Worker Program, followed by Vanuatu and then uh, Samoa, but those are much, much smaller than Tonga. And so if we compare, again, the New Zealand and the Australian schemes, put them side by side, on, this time on a country-by-country country basis, uh, you can see uh, the, the big uh, difference. Uh, New Zealand is more diversified. And uh, even for Tonga, where um, Australia, which, which is by far the biggest beneficiary, um, the New Zealand scheme is still more important uh, to Tonga. Uh, though bear in mind, the Australian scheme is much more profitable on a per-worker basis. The minimum wage is much higher. Uh, in Australia, so um, uh, per worker it's uh, a, a more a profitable scheme, but in terms of total number of workers, are uh, still more going to New Zealand than Australia. Uh, so why do you get this difference uh, between the two schemes that on paper you know, look very similar? And well, we, can, we have, I think, a pretty good answer to this because we've carried out uh, two surveys of horticultural employers uh, in Australia, 
uh, one in 2011, and then we repeated that exercise with a larger sample and with the collaboration of the World Bank in 2014. Uh, so based on those surveys, plus our, uh, what we've seen in New Zealand, um, you know, I think there are really uh, three main reasons. Uh, but the first, if I had to just put it in one word, it would be backpackers. Uh, backpackers. And you have to understand the history. You know, when uh, under Howard, the government wasn't willing to introduce the seasonal worker program, they were still facing this pressure from employers. How are we going to cope with our labour shortage? And so they said, well, we'll reform the backpacker scheme so that if a backpacker works on a farm, and there were a few other regional occupations, but it was mainly farming, if you work on a farm for three months, you can stay for a second year. So it's a deliberate incentive to channel backpackers onto the farms, and it worked. It worked very well. And so this shows uh, the growth in backpackers on farms uh, in Australia. And um, you, you had general growth in backpackers as well. I think, you know, as Europe went into recession, uh, more Europeans came. I mean, the, the backpacker visa has become a sort of a, a migration visa rather than a holiday visa. Uh, so more backpackers in general, uh, and many a big, uh, much higher proportion working on farms. Uh, you, it solved the labour shortage problem that farmers were facing. And so, when the backpacker scheme was introduced, uh, there was no longer that demand. There are still reasons to hire backpackers; they are, they're better quality, they're more reliable. But it was a much more finely balanced decision. Right? The the what they had in New Zealand, which was just a shortage of labour, we didn't have people to pick our fruit. Uh, that disappeared in Australia because of this earlier uh, reform that had been introduced. So that's the most important reason you had this phenomenon of backpackers working on farms that you just don't see anywhere near to the same extent in New Zealand. Uh, second uh, reason, I think it's widely accepted that uh, illegal labour is uh, quite prevalent. Uh, when we ask uh, employers, um, you know, we don't, you won't ask employers, do you use illegal labour? But most employers think illegal labour is used in the horticultural sector. And they could be people without visa, they could be people with visas, but being paid in cash. And uh, so that's very hard to compete with. Of course, the RSE scheme is highly regulated, so you can't you know, get away with uh, you know, not paying proper wages and so on. Uh, it's widely reported in New Zealand that as part of the introduction of the RSE, there was a clean-up of illegal labour and a kind of a collective decision by employers not to use illegal labour. So that also cleared the way uh, for the um, uh, Pacific seasonal workers. And then finally, I think more generally, there has been, a, if you look at those are sort of the superficial reasons, but the underlying reason is lack of employer support uh, in Australia. In New Zealand, you know, the employers really wanted this scheme. In Australia, the employers had their problem dealt with in this other way through the backpackers, the backpacker visa. And um, in any case, it's a much more fragmented industry. It's much more geographically diverse. You know, there's no single peak body there, as there is in New Zealand. So it's a very different uh, employer uh, landscape. And that lack of uh, uh, having uh, employers driving it has uh, meant the scheme. You know, that, that means you, the government's... Who's going to promote the scheme? So the government's not going to promote migration, right? No government promotes migration. Uh, it's left to those employers who actually use the scheme. And most of those who use the scheme do like it. But uh, there are very few of them. And so there, there's, no, there, there's a lack of a powerful advocate. Uh, now, I mean, the good news is, is that the government uh, hasn't given up on the seasonal worker program. The minister, as you see from that quote, is a believer in labour mobility, and there have been a number of reforms uh, recently announced. Interestingly, you know, not where you might expect it, uh, through the North Australia White Paper. And that goes to the point that you know, if you can generate employer demand, an area where you think 
you know, you need to satisfy employer demand for labour, you'll have more chance of promoting labour mobility. So in this, um, well, there are a number of reforms, first of all, to the backpacker scheme, which is the competition to the seasonal worker program. Actually, through the budget, they got rid of the tax-free threshold. Uh, that, was, that was nothing to do with uh, North Australia. That was just a, a way to raise revenue. But that will make it less attractive to come to Australia. And so it might reduce the total number of backpackers. Uh, then, in going to that white paper, in Northern Australia, which is defined as the Northern Territory uh, um, and the northern parts of West Australia and Queensland, uh, now you can get your second-year visa if you work in tourism and accommodation as well as on a farm. Right? And that's seen as something that should reduce that channelling effect into horticulture. Because if you're a backpacker, you'd much rather work at a pub or a cafe right, than out there picking fruit. And if you can get your second-year visa working in a pub or a cafe, that's what you do. So this should help uh, reduce the demand. Uh, there are also some reforms to uh, reduce uh, the seasonal worker employer costs and risks. Um, so that should increase demand for backpackers. Uh, there's a few sectoral additions, although I'm not sure it's going to make a big difference. And then finally, uh, the removal of the cap. So that's a you know, bold move. There is no longer... Those caps I showed you no longer exist. And um, of course, they're not binding, so it won't have any short-term effect. It could have a longer-term effect. I did feel a little sorry for New Zealand because I know the, they had a conference in New Zealand, uh, in Samoa, on the RSC, and the Samoan Prime Minister called on New Zealand to follow suit and eliminate the cap on the RSC. Of course, it's a very different matter to eliminate a cap when it's binding than to eliminate a cap uh, when it's not binding. All right, so those are the two seasonal worker uh, reforms, initiatives, and um, the, the, they are the biggest story of the last decade, uh, especially in New Zealand. Uh, but I want to go on to the other uh, schemes. So this, my second category are these uh, temporary, uh, low-skilled but non-seasonal uh, uh, labour mobility initiatives. And there are two examples here. One is a bilateral arrangement between uh, Timor, Timor-Leste and South Korea. And this is part of South Korea's employment permit system, which is an Asia-wide system that is a way that uh, South Korea uh, gets its low-skilled workers. Obviously, South Korea's got a very low... It's got an ageing population, uh, very high income. They, they have real shortages in low income, and they, this is the way they, they try to fill those shortages. Uh, it's a big program uh, with almost a quarter of a million uh, low-skilled workers. And they introduced team, uh, They brought East Timor into this program in 2005, uh, and East Timor started sending workers in 2008 and have sent them in subsequent years. Now, we've just started to research this uh, scheme, uh, so I don't know a lot about it, and we're, we're actively uh, pursuing it. Uh, but one interesting thing we've already known is that actually South Korea would be prepared to accept many more workers from Timor. You have to be able to speak uh, Korean, and I guess that's a major barrier to overcome. So, you know, team, Timor would, uh, South Korea would accept ten times as many workers as uh, South Korea. As, as sorry, South Korea would accept ten times as many workers as Timor has been able to send. Now, there have been high dropout rates, and only a third have actually completed their contracts. Uh, but you know, the contract can run for up to almost five years, so you can still do significant work and not complete uh, the contract. We have started interviewing returnees, and they are very positive uh, about their experience. So I don't think it's something we should, we should write off straight away. It is something where more research is needed and, as I said, is now underway. Uh, so the second one you know, has just been announced, so there's nothing to report, but it's, a, it's an important and uh, promising initiative. Uh, this is what I've called, I'm not sure what the official title is, but I've called the Microstates Visas, again announced through this North Australia White Paper. So it was credit to those 
who saw the opportunity to do something about Pacific labour mobility through the Australian government interest in promoting uh, Northern Australia. So there will now be 250 visas a year for citizens from Kiribati, Tuvalu and Nauru to work for up to two years in North Australia. Uh, industries haven't been defined, but it's ones that are unable to access Australian workers, so you've got to think it's going to be low-skilled uh, industries. Uh, why these three countries? Uh, because these are countries that don't have... Uh, they're, they're sort of orphan states, right? They don't have uh, very good access to labour markets. Nauru doesn't have any. Kiribati and Tuvalu only have that New Zealand uh, Pacific access category. Uh, these are countries that have very few economic opportunities, uh, in general, so they're ones where labour mobility is um, particularly uh, important. Uh, I will just say this is, this is temporary migration, so it's very different. The, although the annual numbers are similar to the New Zealand Pacific Access category, on a cumulative basis it's very different. Because under the New Zealand, New Zealand scheme, once you go, you, know, you, you take your family and you can stay there. And so you get 75 from Kiribati more every year. Under this scheme, you can take your family, but you have to come back after two years. So you're not going to get that cumulative build-up. But still, you, uh, you, know, you can imagine also that per temporary uh, residency may lead to permanent residency. Um, so this is an interesting uh, initiative. It's just been announced, and so there's, um, that's really all I can say about it. Uh, now... The third, uh, final category of initiatives are those what I call uh, aid for migration. Uh, these are initiatives where you try to promote opportunities for, for people to migrate under existing visa categories. And first of these is the APTC, and I know you're going to hear more from APTC uh, uh, and about APTC later. Uh, here, you know, I just focus on it as a labour mobility initiative. Of course, there's much more to APTC than labour mobility, but... You know, it's important to remember that when it was conceived, it did have labour mobility as its, uh, one of its objectives. And again, you can understand the context. This was that time around 2005 when there was a lot of pressure from the Pacific on Australia and New Zealand to do something about labour mobility. New Zealand said, we'll introduce uh, the RSE. Australia at that point said, no, we're not going to. And so this was Australia's counteroffer uh, to the Pacific, was to introduce the APTC. And as John Howard said when he... Uh, when he launched it uh, or announced it, the college will assist economic growth in Pacific Island countries by addressing skills shortages and increasing work competitiveness and will also assist mobility of skilled workers between the Pacific and developed countries. Um, and that is still this, you know, that, that idea of uh, labour mobility you can still see on the APTC website as one of the, one of the objectives. But when we looked at it, and we, we've got a paper on this, I should say all these hyperlinks are... If you get this on the website, they're all links to various papers uh, and blogs that you can uh, look at if you're interested uh, in finding out more. Uh, when we did an evaluation, I think in 2013, we found that after six years of operation, um, less than 3% of ABC graduates had actually migrated to Australia and New Zealand. So, you know, no, we're not commenting here on its overall success, but in terms as a labour mobility initiative, as an aid for migration initiative, it hasn't. Uh, been successful. Uh, why is that? Uh, well, I think there are two reasons. Uh, again, we look at it at the more superficial and then at the deeper level. At the superficial level, what APC does is give Australian qualifications to its graduates. Uh, that helps you migrate, but it's not sufficient. You know, what you also really need to migrate are, even if you've got the Australian certificate, you'll still need to have your skills tested. Right? And 
these days it helps a lot to have employer links, to have an employer who'll sponsor you. And the APTC initiative doesn't provide those additional benefits uh, to its graduates to help them uh, migrate. So that would be one reason why these numbers are low. And then the deeper reason is that if you look at the APTC literature, it's always viewed itself as operating in this postgraduate or top-up approach where it takes people who are already skilled, often they're already working in the industry, and gives them further skills to get them up to Australian standards. And, of course, if you, if you set up yourself that way, then labour mobility is not going to be something very popular because it's going to be viewed by employers and governments as brain drain, right? Taking the best, getting them more skilled and getting them out of the country. So that mode of operating uh, in postgraduate mode, you know, uh, whatever the reasons, undermined the original labour mobility objective of APTC. I'll just mention uh, there is an interesting pilot the APTC adopted, took up in the last couple of years in Tonga, which is an aged care initiative. Quite different, and this, this does focus on, on unskilled workers. I mean, there is no aged care industry in Tonga. So these are, I think, high school uh, graduates. And um, so if they leave, they won't be uh, contributing to brain drain. Um, and, you know, if they don't leave, well, what will they do? So it, it is much more explicitly a labour market, uh, a labour mobility activity. Now, the problem with this is that there's no migration route to Australia, actually, for aged care workers. So perhaps these workers will end up in New Zealand uh, if they're lucky enough to win the lottery. Uh, the, the final one in this category and the final one in my survey is uh, the Kiribati Australia Nursing Initiative. So this is like a bilateral APTC, uh, one country, one sector. And this was an offer by Australia to train 90 e-Kiribati nurses over an eight-year period starting in 2006. And uh, an evaluation has been done and published of this uh, initiative, and so we have some good data. And, um, you know, by 2014, so eight years later, well, we had got almost to 90. 84 nurses have been trained at a cost of almost 19 million. Now, not all had passed, but uh, the evaluation indicated 68 expected to graduate. And as of 2013, about 60 had graduated. All of them were either working in New Zealand, oh, sorry, Australia and New Zealand, either full-time or part-time, or they were looking for work in Australia or New Zealand. So this initiative uh, was much more successful as a labour mobility initiative, right, in that there were significant, uh, significant number achieved that objective. Uh, and, you know, the reason is they were in Australia, so they were able to make those employer links right, and benefit. It's much easier to make the transition uh, to look for further work if you've been studying. Uh, the problem with this one is the uh, expense. And, uh, you know, there was this phrase was coined, right, the quarter-million-dollar nurses. Uh, this is a very expensive project. And it was that reason, for that reason, the scheme was uh, suspended. Uh, it's not operating anymore. I, I'm not aware of plans uh, to resurrect it. So, overall, what you see in the last decade is a mix of successes and failures. You see a number of small schemes with only the New Zealand RSE scheme succeeding in reaching its targets at least in a sustainable way. Uh, the Kani initiative did, but didn't sustain it. Uh, New Zealand's done much better than Australia, but Australia has at least made a start. I think that, again, I go back to the sea change in attitudes. Uh, the two aid for migration initiatives have not worked out as aid for migration initiatives. We should also, you know, before we get you know, carried away by the, the exuberance or success, we should be aware that there are, while there are a growing number of schemes that discriminate in favour of the Pacific, the schemes that discriminate against the Pacific have also grown. The Backpacker Visa is increasingly a low-skilled temporary migration program 
for OECD countries, as far as Australia is concerned. Uh, to the extent that a, uh, I can't remember if it's South Korea or Taiwan, but there is a, an abattoir company has set up its training center in South Korea or Taiwan, so you train as an abattoir worker. You then get your backpacker visa and you come and work in Australia full-time uh, for a year as an uh, uh, abattoir worker. Uh, another problem we should recognise is the countries that are most in need of labour mobility are the ones who benefit the least from recent reforms. I mean, it's good for Tonga that it's benefited so much from Australia's seasonal worker program, but Tonga is already one of the most dependent countries in the world on, on remittances. Uh, it's really countries like Kiribati, Tuvalu, Nauru, and the bigger Melanesian countries uh, that need more access to remittances. They've struggled to uh, do well uh, in these schemes, with the exception, the very important exception, of Vanuatu in the New Zealand RSE scheme. I think we, we all need to learn, take note and learn from that. Uh, labour mobility reforms are continuing. It's very uh, welcome to see the recent round of reforms coming out of Australia, but clearly more are needed. And one lesson is that Pacific pressure is critical. I mean, it was that pressure in 2005 that led to a lot of these reforms. But reforms work better when there's also pressure from domestic employers. Otherwise, the risk is that there'll be an announcement, uh, but there won't then be... You can get the announcement without the employers, but to get successful follow-through, you need that employer participation because these schemes invariably uh, have a strong element of uh, demand. I just want to look at some further options, you know, what we might think about uh, going forward in terms of labour mobility, you know, assuming throughout that labour mobility is a good, a good thing. You know, not everyone may agree with that, but I certainly feel it's trade in uh, uh, labour is uh, as valuable as trade in exports, you know, especially for a region such as the Pacific. Uh, first, you know, more evaluations needed of various of these schemes, but especially the Korea Timor scheme. But if that does uh, prove to be a success, uh, there could clearly be opportunities for other Pacific countries. Uh, Korea already includes uh, some 15 Asian countries. You imagine they'd be willing to consider extending that to Pacific, uh, other Pacific islands. Uh, there are opportunities to trade fishery access revenue for jobs. This is something uh, Matt Dornan's pointed out recently. Uh, the Pacific's done well in getting more licensed revenue from its uh, fishing rights or rents. Uh, there are provisions uh, in the negotiations, some of the agreements, to also get Pacific Islanders working uh, on, on the boats. Now, perhaps that will mean some trade-off in terms of the amount of licensed revenue you get. Uh, but you know, depending on your views on how well government spends revenue and the social costs of high levels of unemployment, you might be willing to make, uh, to make that trade-off. Uh, I would encourage all Pacific Island countries to get backpacker visa status to come to New Zealand, and Fiji and PNG has done this already. Uh, you should be aware you'll only, you won't get access to the unregulated uh, backpacker visa, the 417, that's closed. Uh, you'll only get access to the 462 visa, which is uh, very small, you know, maybe 100 visas, and you have to get government approval. Uh, so it's not an ideal uh, scheme, but still, it's, a, it's an opportunity that is, that is out there. And then finally, uh, given that the aid for migration schemes haven't worked very well, are there other ways to make that idea work? Uh, for example, we know the Philippines is extremely successful, uh, probably the most successful country in the world, in promoting uh, labour mobility opportunities. Uh, would it make sense for Pacific Islanders to send uh, people to the Philippines to get them into that, uh, those colleges? And that is kind of a treadmill, right? a treadmill that will take you to the United States uh, or the Middle East. Uh, perhaps you don't need to leave the Pacific. Can the Pacific Nursing Institutes be used to train nurses for export? This is not to denude the region of its own nurses. This is to add 
to the number of nurses getting training and then to be able to supply domestically uh, and overseas. There are private nursing colleges. Uh, students can pay for this themselves. And then finally, uh, increasingly, migration uh, and education are linked. And uh, in both Australia and New Zealand, it's an increasingly prevalent migration route is to study in Australia or study in New Zealand, then work in Australia, work in New Zealand, first on a temporary, then on a permanent visa. And is that a route that the Pacific Islands could better uh, access and exploit? Uh, so to conclude, uh, the last decade has been a very active one in terms of reforms and initiatives to improve and expand labour mobility options in the Pacific, quite different from the 1990s and the early 2000s. And there has been a sea change in our outlook uh, in Australia, which I think is very welcome. But there is still a long way to go to really maximise the opportunities uh, for labour mobility. I do think the region needs a body to advocate for and facilitate labour mobility opportunities. And in a region such as this, where labour mobility is very important, I don't think it makes sense to have a body called the Pacific Invest and Trade. Or is it Trade and Invest? Uh, obviously, trade is important, investment is important, but so is labour mobility. And so I have made this suggestion that uh, that body be uh, renamed as the Pacific Invest, Trade and Work, or, or perhaps it should be Pacific Trade, Invest and Work. Uh, so uh, thank you, uh, everyone. Vinaka Fakalevo. And uh, if you are interested, please do check out our uh, blog site and look under Pacific Labour Mobility as one of the topics, and that will take you to a lot of the links that are embedded in my, in my PowerPoint. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.